Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with James Jackson, we've been making this podcast for the past year. Now we have reached the end of Series 1. I think, and I hope you will agree, that we've stuck to our guns. Our mission is on the homepage of our website. It's to make history come alive, to inform, to provoke, and to encourage listeners to dig deeper and read more widely for themselves. In this podcast, Jamie and I will discuss some of the episodes we've published in the last year. We've kept the terms of reference quite wide, which has allowed us to talk about all periods, ancient and modern. We have the Crusades and cults, secret intelligence and special force, Forts St. Elmo and sieges, dogs and horses, machine guns and billiard balls, the founding of America, and of course, the French. And much more besides. We've really enjoyed making this podcast and hope you have enjoyed listening to it. We'll be back in January. In the meantime, please let us know your thoughts. You can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. So here it is, folks, a short summary of what we've done so far. I hope you enjoy it. Which are your three favourite episodes so far out of the 32 that we've done? Well, it's difficult to boil them down because I've always loved the sort of long theme, the long throw, whether it's siege or whether it's crazy cults or whatever. Um, But I think certainly my favourite has got to be Why We Hate the French. That, 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 was, is, that was so easy to predict. That has been a recurring theme. And given what's happened over the Orcas deal and French submarine technology, or 20th century technologies, as I like to call it, it, it just shows the sort of pervading, uh, pervasive peevishness that continues in the French outlook towards the rest of the world and certainly towards les anglophones. All the P words there. All the P words. So uh, petulance, peevishness, <laughs> you name it. Precociousness. <laughs> yes. But, but they like to call us perfidious. They do call us perfidious Albion. And I think we've shown that <laughs> quite well You're quite recently. you enjoying it too much. But, uh, but I think it is... A fascinating podcast from my point of view because, again, there's a long history to it and it's really interesting to see why that rivalry, why that uh, bubbling enmity or at least uh, mutual suspicion has been created over, over the centuries. And here is an extract from episode 14. Once you get to the 18th century, you got the battles dominated by John Churchill, the Duke of Marlborough, and they were on an incredible scale. If you take battles like Oudenard, Blenheim, Ramillies, they they were vast. I mean, Oudenard, there were 160,000 people on the battlefield, and the casualties were huge. This was hand-to-hand fighting. They were basically involved in the Spanish succession, and the Spanish were there as well. Eugene of Savoy was there alongside John Churchill, and they worked extremely well together. And it's quite strange that we ended up in alliance over Spain, but it was very effective. And again, it changed the fate and direction of our relations with France for a very long time. 
Well, my favourite, one of my favourites, was the episode we did on dogs of war, which was mainly about uh, dogs in the First World War in the trenches, such as the Irish Terrier and the Airedale. And of course, uh, you have Irish Terriers. Uh, I, My mum had an Irish Terrier, and I don't have an Irish Terrier at the moment. I have a, a lurcher who would not have fared well in the trenches at all. She wouldn't have enjoyed that experience. But I, I think... Uh, the thing about the dogs uh, and soldiers, airmen, soldiers, and even sailors, perhaps on some some occasions, is that they are the most wonderful companions when the chips are down. Episode 8, Dogs of War. And in the evening, such dogs ringed the mess stove, and by day they waited on the field like squires for the return of their masters. And wasn't there a Jack Russell who knew the planes and knew exactly which one? which flight his own master was in. Absolutely. Here's a description. Stood on the tarmac today watching my flight take off. Chili's little fox terrier was there with me. That little beggar has more sense than the average human being. Sat on his haunches and wouldn't be coaxed away until the flight came back. Didn't even cock his ears when B-flight came in a little while after ours had taken off. But when A-flight returned, watched each machine as it landed. And when Chili climbed out of his bus, he jumped all over him. Some bishop, asked if dogs had souls, said he couldn't imagine a heaven without dogs. Damn right. Best little friends in the world. And they've always been there through war. It's fascinating. There are so many things we haven't put in the podcast because of time and everything else. But you look at the Second World War, it's fascinating that Hitler sent dogs across the border before the Ardennes Offensive, for example, when the 99th Division was attacked at the Battle of the Bulge in late '44. It was dogs that were sent out on patrol by the Germans rather than soldiers because Hitler didn't want them falling into the hands of the Americans and giving the game away. So dogs were sent, and so quite a lot of dogs were killed. And so dogs have always been in the front line, in the same way that they are today. Quite often when the special forces clear caves or clear a building, it's attack dogs that are, that are sent in first. And without doubt, anyone who had a dog over lockdown uh, probably suffered a great deal less than uh, those who didn't. Well, we all know from the dogs visiting hospitals and care homes and hospices that they are critical to the welfare of humankind. I, I don't know what the world would be like without them. So uh, I think it's important that we mention them and that we, we actually talked about them in, in the dogs of war. It's an important subject. Yeah, and we don't like to get too emotional in these podcasts when we're talking sometimes about some very tough things. But in that particular podcast, I think both of us had a little wobble. Yeah, we we, we definitely had a catch in our throat. <laughs> <laughs> we, we wouldn't be human. <laughs> Just listen to the beginning of the podcast when Jamie introduces the subject. I think you'll hear what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, forget the heart attack. It's the dogs that yeah, are not, far more... Yeah, I'm not interested in the heart attack. <laughs> it's dogs that are far more important. And what, what's um, out of the 32? Well, it's 33, actually. What is, um, what is another one that you enjoyed? I, I enjoyed Klepto Kitsch, Tyrants and their lack of taste. And again, there were so many things... 
um, that we could have put in because it's an endless list. And I was thinking the other day about some of the cars. We mentioned Idi Amin's amphibious car. Episode 22, Klepto Kitsch, Tyrants and Their Terrible Lack of Taste. Galloping on, we come to toys and hobbies. Yes, Tom. And just like the baubles and bling, quite often not only does it show the personal tastes or tastelessness of the tyrant, but they also show the, the sort of range of things in which they're involved and that they're interested in. I mean, the drug dealer Escobar had a bullring and a go-kart track, whereas someone like Tipu Sultan back in the 18th century, before he was defeated by Wellington, uh, ended up with things like a clockwork tiger that pretended to eat a British soldier. Uh, then you get Idi Amin, who had an amphibious car. And one of his sons said, well, he's not just a tyrant that the people think he is. He's also a man of practical jokes and laughter because he used to drive his mistresses in the car towards the lake while they were screaming and terrified that they were going to drown and go straight into the lake in this amphibious car. You know, I was thinking, God, why didn't we put in a Mobutu of Zaire's uh, LM2, his armoured Lamborghini, which was one of the first sort of SUVs of its, of its kind. And, uh, yeah, he had an armoured... So he was leading, leading the fashion. He was leading the charge. Uh, in I mean, his che Chelsea is now full of them. <laughs> yeah. But this LM2, I mean, funny enough, Saddam Hussein had several and the US Army blew, blew one up during the invasion of Iraq. But uh, yeah, he had an LM2. And, you know, if you look, we, I think we said that African leaders keep on giving. And, and you look at uh, President Bongo of Gabon. He had a motorcade with 45 vehicles in it. I mean, that, that outstrips a US president. So you can always see that the... the, the extraordinary sort of klepto kitsch of so many of these tyrants and dictators. Yet I bet none of them have that car that the president has, which is called the Beast or something, isn't it? Which is so heavy that when, I think when it went to Ireland and it was coming out of the embassy or something, there was a bit of a ramp, it got basically wedged on the ramp and it was so heavy they had to abandon it and get into something else. Well, I think it's like quite a lot of the carriages and the Royal Muse, particularly the armoured ones. You know, it's like being on a wallowing ship in the middle of the ocean. I don't think Barbara Bush liked that, that car at all. The, you, motion sickness is, is, is the word. <laughs> oh, yes, it's nothing worse than being in one of those old cars swaying around in the back, on the back seat. Well, my second choice would be the Cavalry Charge, which has been one of our uh, most successful and most often downloaded episodes. I think it's quite fun sometimes to talk about a particular aspect, whether it's military or whatever, to see how it fits into the general picture with um, men-at-arms and so on. And I, I think that in that episode, we talked about how effective Cavalry could be in, in battles, but it had to be used in the right way the cavalry troops had to be well-trained. And so Frederick the Great had very well-trained cavalry troops and therefore he could roll up uh, his enemies successfully. One of our first episodes, episode two, Cavalry Charge. Yes, well, Frederick the Great was, became the king of Prussia in 1740 and inherited a rotten cavalry. He had some well-trained Prussian infantry and, in fact, 
in his early encounters on the battlefield, it was really the infantry who saved the day. He was fortunate to have good commander, which I'll come on to in a minute. But only three years later, having having trained up his cavalry, he had the most spectacular uh, result at the charge of the Bayreuth Dragoons at Holland Friedberg in um, 1745, with uh, 1,500 horses, he managed to disperse 20 Austrian battalions, capture 2,500 prisoners, and he captured 67 colours, which will rank as one of the most brilliant feats in military history. And he carried on over the next um, several decades. His general Seidelitz, who was a, a great leader of cavalry, they really learned that if you're fighting a never-ending series of, of wars and battles, you can train your cavalry up to a very high standard so that you can keep them together when they go into the attack. You can recall them and you can position them around the battlefield. And rather than just lose them after the first shot, you can use them uh, on a number of occasions. And they are an incredibly effective force if the enemy you're facing is going a bit wobbly and you send your cavalry in as a wall with no sort of uh, weak spots in it. Uh, you'll just mow down everything. But then you have the charge of the light brigade where they're basically just charging down the wrong valley or charging down the valley rather than up onto the, onto the Russian gun positions. And it's a complete disaster. And so it's nice to, to sort of contrast those two. Also, how, how much that cavalry plays into the sort of history of the army. I mean, I was in a cavalry regiment, so I have a sympathetic frame of mind towards it. But it was certainly true that when my grandfather, who was RAF, was at the Army Staff College between the First and Second World War, he was endlessly frustrated by the lack of thinking in the army some of the, many of the army officers, because all they wanted to do rather than examine new technologies and techniques was to climb on their horse and uh, go and jump over a few hedges and, and chase a fox. But I think we mentioned this. There was this class thing as well going on, certainly between the wars, that a lot of cavalry officers did not like the idea of the tank and the fact that it broke down the officer-men sort of barrier, the distance between them. And suddenly with the tank, you had everyone in a confined space together. Whereas, you know, with a cavalry charge, with a, with a cavalry formation, you still had that sort of hierarchy. But I think what's fascinating about cavalry as well is, is their use by irregular forces. You know, the, the, whether it's the Boer War or the Green Berets in Afghanistan in the 21st century, that you got this use of cavalry by irregular forces, by Boer commandos, for example, in the Boer War. It's not just the solid block, the large cavalry scale cavalry charge. You know, it, it does add a certain flexibility. And they have, over the centuries, been remarkably adaptable. Uh, horses to different types of warfare so yeah they, they even today they still have a role and i and in their defense my grandfather loved horses and his one of his favorite expressions was that he liked to say that uh, you were getting the information from the horse's mouth rather than digging around at the other end <laughs> but like the dogs there's always such pathos as well and and you know you see the losses and and you know the british army during the boer war had half a million horses a third or more of those 
were killed. I mean, it was it was terrifying. And a million in the First World War, I think. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. And and the small whalers, as they were called, uh, brought over from the, the mining um, pits of Australia and elsewhere. I think there were over a hundred thousand of those brought to the Western Front, and only one survived. Yeah. So the losses were catastrophic. Well, my mum's grandfather, who was a vet, after the Boer War, he was sorting out a lot of the injured uh, horses and so on. And, uh, you know, that normally meant that they had to be put down. Yes, I mean, that was always one of the things, because they were never brought back home. No. Right, your, your third choice, Jamie. I think that would have to be 20th century heroines. Uh, and and that was a very moving one to do because was, yeah. so many of them are not known and it was extraordinary to, to, to talk about them again and try to bring them to life. And I was incredibly privileged having met some of those who worked for SOE and women such as Nancy Wake who had worked down in Marseille in that region uh, as an SOE agent, and she was amazing. She was the one you'll remember who uh, ran up to a bunch of Gestapo men near a car, going, "Are you going to give me a lift?" And she also yeah. got that that German to carry her SOE kit and her explosives in a case through the checkpoints at Marseille Station. So I, I was very lucky to have met people like her. You know, Incredible in, bravery in and Incredible bravery, and I always think that for so many of them. Life was never quite as vivid afterwards. I mean, how could it be? No. I mean, I'd say that for uh, anyone who, say, went through the Second World War. I mean, some of them, you know, was sort of the highlight of their life. Yes, but particularly for those agents, you know, it's so, so much of their work was solitary. Um, they knew what would happen to them had they been caught. Um, and their chances were expecting to be caught within six weeks. This from episode 11. 20th century heroines. All those agents uh, really had a death sentence over their heads. So Vera Atkins went out in 46. She roamed around looking for evidence of what had happened to those agents. And 14 of those female agents had been murdered by the Nazis and their deaths had been hidden under the Nacktron Nabel, the night and fog policy of the Germans, and she was determined to find out what had happened. They are heartrending stories. Uh, they include, of course, the four girls who were murdered at Natzweiler concentration camp. Uh, they were taken there. They were taken from their cells to the uh, crematorium. They were injected with phenol and thrown alive feet first into the furnaces. One of them managed to get out of her stupor, her drugged state, and scratch the face of Peter Straub, her executioner. And he was identified because he had scratch marks on his face. They were still there. You just realise the horrors and the terrors that so many of these SOE agents were subjected to uh, when they were caught. And that is the sort of horror that... Uh, Vera Atkins was confronted by as she went around finding out exactly what had happened to the girls she considered her agents. Straub was hanged in 46, but so many others got away. Yeah, then you get extraordinary people like Ursula Graham Bauer, the one who wore out two Sten guns fighting the Japanese and ambushing them. 
uh, out in Burma. So, you know, they were amazing women, and it was just great to be able to mention them and to try and bring their stories to life. Yeah, daughters of the empire. That's right, and, and, and those formidable American women as well from both the First and Second World War. And there was Edith Cavell and her extraordinary heroism in, in, as a nurse getting men out through the escape lines, through her escape route. In the First World War. In the yeah. First World War. So, you know, so many of them were amateur enthusiasts, if you like, people who were trained in a different area and then came to the fore getting people out. You look at people like Day Day in the Second World War, extraordinary. She was only 24, 25, and Belgian, and, and got a 1,000 men out across the Pyrenees. So it, it, they were truly remarkable, and it was just right that we remembered them and did a podcast about them. And anyone who had any doubts as to whether we should end the war as fast as possible or not... Um, should read some of the stories about how the Nazis treated these women when they captured them in an utterly barbaric fashion, uh, ending in murder. Yes, and and women like Odette Churchill were very lucky to survive. So, so many of them didn't. So many of them ended up at Ravensbrück. And and talking about the amateurism, I mean, you get someone like Mary Lindell, who was just phenomenal and didn't take any truck from anybody. She was the one who had ended up in a German court, and I, I th- and she, she was uh, her sentence was reduced when they found she had been a nurse um, in the First World War, and they gave her nine months, and she said just long enough to have a baby with Adolf. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the Nazis probably took that as a compliment, being <laughs> dumb about things. But uh, that was probably the point. She got her little punch in. Yeah, she did. And they even stood up and saluted her. Hmm. I mean, absolutely. Did she had the Légion d'honneur or something like yeah, that? Yeah, she, she did. She did. Yeah. She's the one who gave a German airman a lift in her car, and he he made her go round the bombers at his base, showing them off. And uh, she she had a guards officer that she was helping to escape in the back of the car and managed to pass him off as a simpleton. Because <laughs> like all, all good guards officers didn't speak very good French. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. absolutely amazing. Yeah, well, my third choice would be a sort of combo of two, which would be the uh, Bombs Away episode, uh, where we looked at uh, bombing in the First and Second World War and how it developed to the modern day. And then on from that was uh, the the top-and-tailed speech we put out uh, about my grandfather, Bomber Harris, or Arthur Harris, uh, which he gave in 1977 to the uh, Bomber Command Association, which gives a very precise, given his age of 85, a very precise account of why it was necessary to bomb Germany in the way that it was in the Second World War. This is episode 28 Sir Arthur Harris's speech to the Bomber Command Association at Grosvenor House, 30th of April, 1977. I get my facts straight from the horse's mouth. I don't go digging around at the other end of the animal where those people I've referred to. And we have some very fine horses (laughs) running for us, ranging from the most senior 
American commanders to the most senior British commanders and, oddly enough, the most senior German commanders in the last war. The 8.8 centimeter dual-purpose anti-aircraft and anti-tank gun was probably the most useful gun that the Germans possessed and as the armament, for instance, of their Tiger and Panther tanks, it was the only gun, mobile gun, capable of competing with the very heavy frontal armament of the Russian tanks. No less than 20,000 of those guns had to be taken away from the German armies on all their fronts, kept away from them, and scattered all over Germany because of the unpredictability of where the strategic bombers were going to strike next. Speer says that that reduced the anti-tank ability of the German forces on all their fronts by half. Well, when you realize that no army on either side ever advanced a yard without their armored spearhead first busting a way through the defense. You can realize what it meant when the bombers, the strategic bombers, cut their anti-tank defenses by half. He goes on to say that uh, that requirement of being prepared to defend every German city and every German vital factory against the possibility and the unpredicted probability of bombing of any one of those particular places meant the stationing all over Germany of hundreds of thousands of men who should have been in the forces. Field Marshal Erhard Milch, who commanded the German anti-aircraft defenses, said he had 900,000 fit, he stressed the words fit, men in his anti-aircraft command alone. When he says fit, he means they were fit to have been up in the front line of the German armies on the various fronts and not kicking their heels around Germany, waiting for the strategic bombers and wondering where they were going to strike next. Well. If you know of any individual army on the Allied side, which throughout the war deprived the German armies of well over a million men and half their anti-tank abilities, I would personally be very obliged for the information. <laughs> Yes, it was a very cogent argument that he put out there. And it was fascinating to hear it from him. And so often one hears academics and historians coming up with their versions and their, their sort of hindsight. But it, it was Bomber's speech that actually makes it so clear what, what his mindset was, what, what motivated him. And, you know, his defence of his actions, or actually the actions of Bomber Command. 
and the fact that he didn't believe in chasing individual U-boats around the Atlantic. It was far better to, to hit them at source, to hit their submarine pens or their production lines. You can really understand some of the arguments that float around today that, that are, are fairly absurd, where he's, he's compared to people like Stalin and, and Chairman Mao, and it's just, you can't compare him to a dictator. He was an employed member of, of the forces um, with political leaders over and above him. And uh, so that in itself is, is, is a ridiculous thing that keeps coming up. Yeah, I and mean, those accusations are uh, idiotic and historically illiterate. They're absolutely absurd. And as I think I pointed out in, in one of them, you know, until Montgomery and Patton crossed the Rhine in the spring of '45 how else could we have hit Germany directly? There was no other way of hitting Germany. Yes, we could do combined operations, attacks on the coast of France, for example, but we couldn't hit Germany. So Bomber Command was the only way of doing that. And they did it well. Uh, and they caused the Germans to keep a million-plus men in Germany uh, for civil defence and air defence. And they caused the redeployment of a lot of 88 dual-use weapons. So, And almost all the Luftwaffe as well. Yes, quite apart from the uh, cost and time and effort for the Germans of rebuilding and redeploying uh, industry to underground centres, production centres. So it, it was extremely important what Bomber Command did and, and, and no amount of... of historical inaccuracy today and and sort of the barbed comments of various commentators is is going to change that yeah it's true the war is a bitter business you have to hit hard to get it done very good jamie okay well how would you then summarize our first series and whether or not we've stuck to what we said we'd originally do with this podcast how would i summarize it um a lot of biscuits and cups of tea I hope that what it's done with each of the podcasts is uh, prick people's interests, that they pick up things that they didn't know. I mean, even if they pick up just one thing they didn't know and thought, that's fascinating, then I think we've done our job. More importantly, I think that if it makes people read around a subject, and this is what I said right at the start, if, if they read around the subject, start looking things up and, and notice the flow of history, you know, that they start seeing how things are connected. You know, human nature, human behaviour doesn't change, but seeing it adapt to different environments and how it changes through the century, just in terms of the technology, the application of force, uh, and, and the situations in which they find themselves, you know, that's an important job. And, and I think we're one of the few podcasts that really looks at that you know, that, that we're not constrained to just one period of history. I think it's important that we continue to reach across the centuries and that, for example, in the siege podcast, that we go from the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70 to the sieges of today. And, and, and that's critical. We're going to keep roaming throughout the centuries. We're going to keep roaming. OK, that's it. A wrap. We hope... You'll join us again in January when we'll have more episodes for you to enjoy. In the words of Mark Twain, history 
doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.